Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Car Chat Podcast. I'm Sam Moores, and with me today, I have Callum Sevier. Hello. Hello. How are you? Very good. Very good. Can you tell the audience a little bit about sort of who you are, what you do? Yeah, uh, I'm Callum, and uh, I'm the founder and director, along with my brother, Nathaniel, um, of Retro Power. Um, And we basically muck around with cars in a shed is probably the way I like to describe it to people, although some, some people perhaps think it's a bit more impressive than that. Um, but that's certainly where the roots are. Okay. So I came to visit you, I don't know when it was, a couple of weeks ago, a month ago, something like that. Um, guess, have a little poke around because I'd sort of, I don't know where I first, I think I first came across you through the Gordon Murray build that you did. But um, yeah. well, um, let's talk about that in a bit. How, how did this all start? Like, have you been building cars forever? Uh, or a, We've been mucking around with machines forever. That's probably the best way to describe it. So Nat and I grew up in a little village uh, and my parents had what I think when they bought it would hope to would be like a little sort of they were probably watching the good life on telly if you remember that at the time <laughs> yeah, yeah. And thought they had a little farmstead there so they had a field out the back and in reality they were far too busy with their day jobs to 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 make it much more than a, a sort of little small holding but it was it was a pretty cool place to grow up uh, and there was always machines around so and my brother particularly was always tinkering with those so skimming the head on the ride on lawnmower to make it go faster and then we bought like a, a mini that we thrashed around a field at the back and we had a astra which was probably everybody would say was sacrilege now we had a mark one astra 1300s that we thrashed around this field at the back of, at the back of the house probably upsetting the neighbors there was a footpath across the field as well so i'm sure it was highly dangerous um 
but uh, that's kind of where it all started. And, the, and my dad was fairly into cars, um, but not in, in any sort of professional sense. He just, he just liked cars. Um, and it kind of went from there. And that, and that particularly, he's the older brother, so he has always been the one who does stuff first. Um, uh-huh. He started out kind of building cars. So he built like a Caterham-style car, you know, like a Lotus 7 clone, basically, yeah. um, literally from scratch. There was a book, you probably, you may have seen it. I think it was a, a Haynes book called How to Build a Sports Car for 250 quid or something. Okay, um, nice. It was basically the plans on how to do a, a Lotus 7 type car based on Cortina running gear and stuff. And he kind of built a chassis for that, but never finished it. And then he started doing um, a Peugeot 205 rear wheel drive conversion rally car, which he pretty much finished. Just This is just in the garage at my parents' house. <laughs> um, that was pretty cool. Vauxhall Redstop, Atlas Axle, 20, Peugeot 205. I think that was chosen because they were fairly rot-free and at the time extremely cheap to buy. Um and then you know, I, I I was also into that sort of thing. I did a lot. I was kind of I think I was and still am more into the driving aspect of it, and he's more into yeah. the engineering aspect. So I did a lot of karting. I used to go like every weekend karting and was at the level actually where I probably could have gone off and done that professionally, but just it didn't interest me enough at the time, I don't think. Yeah. Um like, you know, I loved doing it, but there was just so much else going on in my life, it didn't seem like the thing to do. Um and then yeah, over the years, you know, both of us have just continued continuously messing around with cars. There's always been some old car that we've been mucking around with, whether it be annoying my parents on their drive or then when later on when we got a house and initially the house uh my brother moved into when he first moved out from his parents, I moved into with him. And yeah, that, the driveway there was just a, a massive grinding dust and <laughs> welding spatter and everything else that goes with this sort of thing. Um and then it was a lot, a lot later. Uh, I was, I was not professionally involved with cars at all. I was a bar manager actually. Um, my brother was an engineer. At, he was a, a process improvement engineer at a steel rolling mill that uh, made the races for Timkin bearings, uh, and then after that, a rubber extrusion factory that mm. was linked to cars because they did the rubber sealing systems for lots of big car manufacturers. Okay, yeah. Um, so he was basically in charge of making sure the production lines there were doing everything to the a good enough quality and working out ways of improving the quality of the parts they were making. And mm. they were making stuff for Toyota and Bentley and companies like that. Uh, and then it, it was around that time I started buying and selling cars, thinking there was loads of money in that, which is <laughs> pretty much not true at all. Um, and looking at older cars and kind of doing little bits of what I now see was just bodging up cars. Yeah. Um, but actually, at the time, it made enough money that I, I left my day job just to do that. And it, at that point, we had a discussion and said, should we get a unit? And you know, just carry on looking around with cars, basically. But, hey, wouldn't it be cool if we could make a living doing it? Um, and there's never been any kind of financial drive to it. It's literally just been, we love messing around with cars. Or wouldn't it be cool if we could do it and earn a living? Yeah. Um, and I'd say the first, that was 2009 when we got the unit and officially set up Retropar. Um, I've still got the scrap of paper somewhere at home where I was literally doodling like name, different name ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what were some of the other ones? I'd say you know, oh, a lot of them had retro in. I'd have to, I'd have to dig up a bit of paper. It's got like <laughs> logos and sort of hand scrawled on it as well. I, I found it quite recently when sorting out a load of stuff in my loft. Um, so yeah, we and we yeah we basically just rented this unit, which is now a small part of the site we're on now. We've always been on this site, but 
almost by good fortune, the building, the unit we rented was part of a much bigger building that was yeah. partitioned down. And as time has gone by, we've just taken on more and more of those units. Um, but it started out, yeah, just finding any way we could to work with old cars because uh, we loved doing it. So it was just, you know, welding up arches and sill repairs and that sort of thing. And just to keep us actually bringing in some money whilst doing something we enjoyed doing. Um, and then it just escalated from there uh, and, and exponentially so. And we're in this position now where we would have never dreamed we'd have got to this position, but we've kind yeah. of got these clients approaching us about building cars that are kind of our dream cars um, with budgets that can allow us to, you know, really push the boundaries, you know, because we just want everything to be pushing further, doing it better, you know, more attention to detail, everything better. Every car we do, we try to think of a way to do it better than the last one. Um, and we've got customers that can afford to do that now, which is fantastic. So, yeah, but yeah, so from that very early point, I'd say by 2010, probably the second year, we got our first ground-up build, which was an Opel Ascona uh, for a guy um, in Cumbria. Weirdly, I mean, he'd come, come a long way to see us, and we weren't even well well known at all at the time, so that's bizarre with hindsight. But, uh, um, yeah, so that was our first kind of bare shell to turnkey car build. And I think that was a, a, a pivotal moment almost because he took that car to, yes, that's the one. Uh, he took that car to a lot of shows. He just loved going to shows in it. So it was seen in all sorts of all sorts of shows and gained a huge amount of attention. Um, I remember really vivid, one of my most sort of earliest retro power vivid memories is that he took it to a, an all makes German car show near Wigan somewhere. Um, and it was a it was a big deal. BMW Car Club were there. Porsche, if I remember correctly, had their own stand there. Um, and he got overall car of show uh, in an Opel Ascona, which nice. was quite a, a proud moment at the time. And then that 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 then sort of led to more full build projects coming in. And then it's just it's just built and built and built. And then um, I guess. Must be nearly four years ago now. Was that mad moment when Gordon Murray approached us and said, "And this was people always say, did you go after him and actually try and get that business?" And it was not that at all. He literally just rang us up and said, "I want you to build me a car. Can I come and see you?" And then it wasn't until he came through the door we actually thought that was just <laughs> some guy called Gordon Murray. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're just putting filling in the blanks totally wrong. <laughs> but no, they just walked through the door and spent a few hours with us chatting, and you know, we kind of laid down the foundations for what that car was going to be, that Mark one Escort. Uh, and then he did another visit to refine the spec more. And then I guess that was a another moment uh, that was a, a crucial one, was that coincided with our decision to do a YouTube channel. That was a, we, we already had a YouTube channel, but it was just like mm. the odd phone video of something we'd done. Um, and we'd always wanted to do more in-depth videos, really to counter... All of these videos you see where everything happens in five minutes and they gloss over all the detail. Yeah. And, you know, it's, complete build, it's six days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Whereas we know, you know, all of these sort of SEMA builds and things you see, you know, in the States, they take, you know, usually years yeah. to, to finish. Um, and the level of detail in like a top notch build like that is huge. And, and there's, there's so little sort of television that brings, conveys that to the wider audience we wanted to do something that really showed the, the amount of detail every every step of the way um and we thought well if we're ever going to do a video that shows that 
this Martin Escort yeah. and Gordon Murray is pretty much tick, a perfect tick. combination. Um, so I thought, right, yeah, let's do this. So we did that video, and then that, you know, that gained us a lot of YouTube followers. Um, well, I say a lot. I, the, the numbers these days are just bonkers. So <laughs> although we've got a reason, what I can see to be a lot of subscribers, isn't it? The scheme of things, it's not very many, but um, you know, at the end of that, people wanted more. So we did started doing a series on the marketing shag that we're doing, Project Utah, which is almost complete. Um, and then the first COVID lockdown um was a gave we we basically shut the business for a few months because that that first lockdown nobody knew what was going on it was all just chaos wasn't it so um we decided to close the business for a few months um and that gave us some quite good time to think about the bigger picture Mm -hmm. and one of the things i wanted to think about was how we could do more video content without it impacting on our time because one of the things a lot of people don't necessarily consider is that most of the big YouTube automotive YouTube channels, their main business is making YouTube yeah. videos. Whereas obviously our main business is building cars and the YouTube is just something we fancy doing. So we've got to be mindful of the fact we don't want to impact on the time that we're putting into the cars by focusing any time really on the yeah. videos. So we came up with this format where Jamie, who already worked for us, but he was primarily doing written articles and photography. He said, well, I'd be up for doing camera work and trying my hand at video yeah. editing. Uh, so he just started filming everything that was going on around the workshop. Um, and we then do, literally on a Thursday afternoon, We he gets a mic on, me and my brother, or both of us on a lot of occasions now. Uh, and we do literally like a 30-minute, 40-minute walk around the workshop, talk about what's been going on. And he puts that together with all the B-roll footage he's been shooting in the back in the background. So the, the impact in terms of time that we would otherwise be working on the cars is literally just that half an hour yeah. for one of us, which is very minimal. Um, and yeah, it seems to have it seems to have worked really well. People are sort of keeping on in touch with what we're doing, and it's it's been quite good in terms of spreading the word and generating business as well, which is what we hope. So it's it's kind of two it's twofold. We we love showing off what we're doing because. It's very easy when you're just beavering mm. away in a workshop to lose track of, lose sight of everything that's going on. And sometimes you kind of don't feel that your work's necessarily appreciated. Yeah. So it's nice just showing off what we've been doing. Uh, but obviously it is good good promotion as well. Yeah, so I think that's that. Coming across the, so yeah, my first exposure was the Gordon Murray build um and and i you know i think like a lot of people you you see that uh, Gordon Murray's having a car built and you're like, "Oh, okay, click." And then um, I think the bit I found really interesting, and there's, yeah. there's a couple of, you know, there's been some other products on YouTube that have done a similar sort of thing in terms of just just showing lots of detail over a long period of time. But it's not that often. Most most people do not show that. Yeah. And I think straight away, one, we know Gordon has a crazy attention to detail and the video just on this car shows his attention to detail. But the thing that struck me was also your attention to detail and like what you guys are doing and the level of effort and stuff that goes into all of the different bits and pieces and blah, blah, blah. And you think I'd look to the building and go, okay, it's an escort build. Okay. They're going to strip it down, whatever, blah, 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 blah. And then I think one point I remember Gordon sitting there being like, okay, where he wants the steering wheel and the gear stick or whatever. And it was like, no, this needs to be a little bit further that way, a little mm. bit further that way steering wheel bit this bit that whatever and yeah. then i know you guys try and like mock everything up to the like nth degree yeah 
in all manners and then cut it once <laughs> or print it once or you know manufacture it yeah, once yeah. um how is yeah i mean that, that that ultimately is it's the key really to a a really well turned out car build is how much level you go into in the early stages when you're in the metalwork phase that's where it all happens and you, you need to plan everything at that point almost to the point where you've built the car as a complete car whilst it's bare metal so you can plan every detail, like where every wire is going to be routed, where every pipe is going to be routed, and make sure there's you know methods in the body shell for mounting those bits um, and passing those bits through bulkheads and all of that. All of that stuff is thought out at that stage. So then, in theory, you then pull it apart, paint everything, powder coat things, whatever, whatever the surface finishing processes are, and then build it and it's already been built so it just flies together now it's never that easy there's always things you've overlooked and that's what we're every project we strive to cover more and we're like we're not going to make that mistake again we're not going to make that mistake again and you know over time you make less and less of those little yeah. little mistakes here and there where you think well it's not it's not been a massive compromise but given another attempt we wouldn't do that next time and so each progressive build gets smoother and smoother as we learn the process more and more. So although every car is a one-off, over time you realise that you're applying the same kind of engineering processes and because we're approaching them totally from a blank canvas point of view, all things like the plumbing systems, fuel systems, they're almost the same carryover. And electronics as well, you know, the methods for building the wiring looms, the electric yeah. systems that are controlling the cars – we're using those. They're, they're almost the same. Yes, okay. They're, they're different in terms of the exact measurements, but they're the same systems that we're trans, you know, transposing over to yeah. another car. So it becomes more efficient the more you do. How do you um, like? How do you map out all that stuff? Because like the whole final. When I look at one of the final builds, and then we walked around loads of cars, and if if anyone gets a chance and and is, is doing something, go to, go have a look around and have an opportunity to look around one of these builds, but. You're like, oh, this bit there, blah, blah, blah. We had to do this to do that, da, 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 you know, all this stuff. How do you map that out from the beginning? Because there's a lot. Yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, it's it's um, meetings between um, myself and Nat mm. primarily. Uh, now, we're getting to the point now where there's only so much stuff we can fit in our heads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So we've got, you know, we've got an incredible team around us. And now we've now got so Adam's our workshop manager. So he takes on a lot of that um, that role of working out how things are going to be. So generally, we just have a, a walk around the car right at the start, almost like a brainstorming session of how we can package everything to make it look, not only look neat, but function really well. So we'll kind of plan out where all the components are going to go, what, what components we might use or throw out ideas for possible you know, solutions to the problems you know, possible routings for wiring and plumbing where it will keep it neat and tidy. Um, and then we'll, we kind of job list all of that. Um, and then when we get to the metalwork stage, we'll refine those ideas more. So we know, you know, yes, we want to mount this, uh, let's say, electric power steering pump down here because it'll keep yeah. it clean in the engine bay. How are we going to do that? What pump are we going to use? How are we going to route the pipes? And we'll have a meeting and discuss that and, throw ideas back and forth, look at the pros and cons, what, what might that be close to, might that get hot there, you know, whatever the, those details are, and bash out between us a, a plan, and then that gets jotted down and essentially then job listed. So you, once you've got the plan, you break it down into 
okay source source the pump um see it maybe cut design the mountings for it uh do the metal work on the shell to allow that to fit into there and you can break it down into jobs then and uh and hand those jobs over to the relevant people do you do a lot of cad stuff now in in well, i guess cad and cam is probably the correct terms yeah yeah an enormous amount and actually that's something we're ramping up a lot we have done a lot for quite a while um certainly the 2d stuff so we've got a cnc plasma cutter here which is basically for cutting mm. sheet metal into shapes um and we've done sort of bracket design and even repair section design in cad for a long while um whereby we'll draw the parts in 2d and then pl- cut them out on the plasma cutter uh which although it's perhaps no more no more efficient the first time than cutting it out cutting out a piece by hand um if you then need tweaks to that, you've already done the drawing. So the second time around, it's very, very quick because all you've got to do is edit the bits in the drawing that weren't quite, quite right and then hit go to yeah. cut another one. Uh, and then 3D component design is something that we've we've come on massively recently. If we've, we've got four people here who are kind of proficient at CAD, uh, out of James, Nat, and George. George is the most recent addition, but he is now purely doing CAD work. Um, so there's just a constant list of components that we want designing um and we're pushing that to the next level at the moment in that last month we bought a 3d scanner so we have we have had scan work done before and design components for instance the lights on the back of project utah the mark ii jag i'm just glancing over there because it's out of it's just out of shot of uh, the camera over there um where we scanned the back end of the car and then used that scan model to design the rear lights and then machined those from the cab model to be a perfect fit for the back um but we bought that scanning in house now with a view to the end goal being that we'll scan an entire car when it arrives, every detail, all the engine bay, basically yeah. all the detail of the body shell. And then we can design all of the components in CAD Ooh. to fit in the spaces and indeed all the interior. So when we're doing like a scratch built interior, which is something we do quite a lot, um, we can literally design every component of the interior in CAD inside the 3D model of the, yeah. the cockpit of the car. And that not only allows us to visualize it, because we can then render that CAD to give all the surface finishes and literally create like a visual render of the inside of the car, how it's going to look. So that way we can throw it, we can show that to the customer and we can tweak and change until we're all happy with it. Um, And then from that, we can literally machine the components from the CAD models as well. So that, you know, whether they'd be machined in aluminium or uh, 3D printed, we've got a 3D printer in house as well, which is great for stuff that's going to be upholstered or for prototype parts, um, or whether even CNC routed from wood or MDF. Uh, whatever that process that is, we can then make the components directly mm. from the CAD drawing. Um, and this is something that we've progressively been moving more and more towards, whereas previously we were sort of hand making things to fit. Um, you know, and uh, hoping in a way that it, that it turned out looking like the customer wanted. Obviously, we're keeping them appraised along the way and do some hand sketches and things so they'd know. But we're pushing more towards being able to visualise the entire thing uh, in a CAD model first and then making all the components from that model. That, I mean, that sounds like a big step on. In, in, it's that sort of blend of technology and old school being able to just like make loads of cool yeah. stuff. Because I think if most places i've been into <laughs> it's definitely yeah it's definitely a big step like you go in and 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 like going in your place you you see loads of people hands on doing metal working xyz you know just like making stuff for cars and forming things and you know doing a lot of that and then 
chatting to you about it as we're going around. You should hear about all of this design and CAD side of it. Now, if you're scanning a car, mm. how long does that take to model it? Quite a long while, yeah. There's, there's, there's a lot of hours involved, for sure. Um, there's kind of pros and cons. I mean, we, could, we can just make parts up on the fly, essentially, sort of as, as we go through it, which probably takes no less no more time sorry than doing it in cad but the problem again this is a bit like what i was saying about the 2d sheet metal cutting the problem arises if you then find those bits aren't aren't a great fit or the customer then says oh actually wouldn't it be nice if that was a little bit different or we decide it would be nice if that was a little bit different you've then got a situation where you put all the time into making that part and then you're like okay it's not quite how i wanted it and then you've got to make a painful decision over whether you totally remake it or whether you put up with the fact it's not quite how you wanted it um and the CAD just eliminates that. So, um, you know, it's, it's only something we're getting into massively at the moment. So we're just starting an E-Type project, which is going to be the first one where we've 3D scanned the whole car. And we'll really, the amount of, of CAD parts is going okay. to be a lot. Now, that's not to say there's not a lot. If I look through the CAD folders for most of the projects here, there's probably, I would say, typically 100 to 150 parts that we've designed in CAD for each car. Um, and that's including sort of sheet metal parts for the body, et cetera. Yeah. Um, but so this, there's, there's already quite a lot, but we've never done one where we've literally visualized the entire interior and made all the components um, from CAD models. So I think it's going to be another step up in, in that sense. But yeah, the, the, the big, big benefits, being able to visualize stuff, make sure everything's 100% how you want it to look before you actually start making it at all where rather than making things and then finding oh the fit of that would be a little bit better if we'd done it slightly differently it, it always feels like there's little elements where you could have done slightly better and that ties in what i said before with that because we were trying to do every project better this is just another tool that allows to take mm. more of those little niggles of oh, it would have been nicer if we did it on this if we have done that and it just pushes the game forward to that that next step yeah, that, that makes sense, especially, I imagine, when you're doing things that are sort of underneath other stuff. So let's say your dash, you've got all the bits behind the dash. And if you build it up from the sort of bottom up, you might get to the point where the stuff on top doesn't fit properly or doesn't whatever. And then you can move things around basically being able to see through stuff as you're designing it. Exactly that. Yeah. So one of the one of the big challenges we have often, and this surprises people, is the heating, ventilation, aircon systems we put in cars, they take up a huge amount of space. Um, and we're often having to almost in, think about that at the very early stages of the metalwork so we can plan where the air intake to that unit's going to be, where you're going to get fresh air coming into it, where the vents are going to be, and where the whole unit's going to be, because it's quite a big chunk to fit, especially on older cars where the dashes are quite slim, um, trying to fit all of the components yeah. that go in to a system that has modern functionality. So you've got to get the aircon uh, condenser unit in there. You've got to get the uh, heater matrix for the hot water. Then you've got to have a flapper, servo motor flapper that goes between the two. Then you've got to have servo motor flappers that choose the air direction. So you've got the demiss vents, face vents, foot vents. Now, all of this stuff on really old cars, sort of 60s and 70s, they didn't have any of it. Um, like a Mark One Escort, for instance, the heater yeah. in that is a fan blowing through the heater matrix to two vents on the dash, and that's literally it. Um, and you can swivel those vents to point the air either at the windscreen or at your face, and that's the full, <laughs> the full ability of the HVAC system, as they call it. 
So trying yeah. to fit all that in is, a, is one of the bigger challenges we have. Um, so although we've, we've not done this before, but certainly going forward, the ability to 3D scan some of the various um, generic HVAC units we can get and then try them in CAD virtually, try and fit them behind the dash. And then we can kind of start build, construct yeah, yeah. the dash in CAD and work out you know how we can fit it around that and whether there's space for the instruments the back of the instruments where they go through the dash whether there's space to route all the ducting um and you can kind of work on that without having them I mean, at the moment we would just get we've got like a mock-up unit of most of the heater units we use they're just like a vacuum formed uh, model of the final one so it's much lighter and easier to get into place so we use those and get it in there and do all the metal work around it but being able to visualize it all first so we can think further ahead and foresee problems earlier down the line if you like before they happen so we don't have everything in place heater wise and then go oh hang on it would be nice if we had the clock in the middle of the dash but the depth of that's hitting the heater and okay how are we going to get around that maybe we've now got to move the heater and do a few adjustments and it, it minimizes all the time in those adjustments that you find further down the line when you can plan it all out and it, it's it's sort of scarily heading towards that point where you're basically getting towards being an actual car manufacturer in terms of designing all the car now we're not getting quite that far because yeah, we're still yeah. using mechanical components from other cars and obviously starting with fundamental body shells from other cars um but the amount of design work in interior components and engine bay components and that side of things is getting towards what's involved with actually designing a you know a, a mainstream manufacturing car yeah it does and then you see it in the in the finished builds they're all so clean like and i guess that's that's the aim isn't it it's like do all of this design work go over the top yeah and these are you know they're very time intensive builds so you're gonna have to do all this stuff but then the end product once you've done it like that you just i presumably to achieve that without doing it like that is basically impossible like you just can't get it that perfect. Certainly, the the, the mock up build stage. Yeah, I mean, if you don't if you don't plan it all at the metalwork stage, you cannot get it looking that good because we're literally changing the shape of engine bays, etc., to work around the components we're using. Um, you know, a good example would be mm. Gordon Murray's dry sump tank. So that we designed the whole of that tank. It's got various billet machine parts of the components of the tank, and then there's a, a recessed part of the inner wing and the slam panel, which all flow into the shape of the tank. Right. And then the way it's held, we've got like a breather in the top of it, which actually goes out through the inner wing. And so the breather spigot is also the part that attaches the tank to the inner wing. So it serves two functions. So there's no visible fasteners actually attaching that tank to the inner yeah. wing. Uh, and then the breather goes underneath and there's a breather tank under the inner wing in front of the wheel arch with a stone shield on it. Um, and that sort of thing is why it looks so clean in there. So we haven't just bolted a bracket in, put a tank in afterwards, then go, oh, okay, where well, are going to put a breather tank? Yeah. There. We'll put it here. And yeah, you can make it look reasonable like that by designing the components to fit into the engine bay. But if you can also design the engine bay around the components, it just gives you that next level of how clean you can make it look. Um, and one of the things we also we always have in mind is not wanting to the cars to look modified which is it's quite difficult to describe to people what we mean by that but we always have in mind that if somebody hadn't seen this car before and they saw it for the first time now would they think it was a modified car and we, we're always aimed to try and make it look like that's how it came from the factory um the morris that we're just doing at the minute is a good example it's much wider in the body it's about four inches each side wider in the arches um, we we basically hand modelled those the shape of the arches and then took profiles off and made them in steel. 
But the idea from the start was how can we make the shape of this body look like it was always supposed to be like that? Um, uh, you know, that, it's, yeah. it's always pleasing when I see comments but from people saying, oh, it almost doesn't look modified. And that's that's exactly the aim that we're going for. Yeah, it's it's that's one of the things. Like, I think um, for the first, there was a, what, when I came to Lit Round, I think the only finished car that was sort of in there, everything else was in various stages of build, was um, the XJC that you did a while ago. Um which I saw, and to be honest, I didn't know, I didn't really know what an XJC was. So I just see this cool looking old Jag thing. And I'm like, well, that's pretty cool. What's that? Like, it, and, it, and, and that's it. Like, I didn't go, oh, I can tell this has been, you know, you've bolted on a, a wing on the back and put some massive arches on that clearly don't fit and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It was just, oh, this looks like a nice designed, cool thing. And then when I got home afterwards, I went and looked at, xjc's so like original ones to just see like what the comparison was like oh no these look considerably more vintage but like it's difficult you then want to see them both next to each other yeah yeah i mean actually the fundamental shape and it's this is often the thing is work is identifying what features worked really well originally on the car and actually the the body shape on Mm. things is amazing um, but it was detracted from by a lot of the bolt-on stuff. So it had massive chrome bumpers with huge overriders, which just looked too big. I mean, I, I understand why they were there, um, but if you approach it from a totally visual point of view, they don't look right. And then there's far too much little fancy chrome bits, too many badges, too many chrome strips. Um, the, they all had vinyl roofs as well, which although there is there is something cool about a vinyl roof, it on that car, I think it detracts from what are some really amazing flowing lines on the car. Um, so actually on that, we didn't change a ridiculous amount. The rear arch shape is different, which was probably the key change. So we, we brought the rear arch higher up the body rather than having the line kind of cut across the wheel line. Um, and then we changed the rear valance quite a lot. We did our own rear bumpers that were quarter bumpers rather than the full bumper. Uh and then the front, we sort of slimmed the bumper down, tightened it into the body. We made our own grill for the front. Um, but yeah, the fundamental body shape, with the exception of the rear arches, is more or less standard on that car. And it's kind of testament to how nice the car is to look originally. It's, it's a beautiful car. It just needs mm. all the detail, thinking about more, perhaps. That, I, would say, I was about to say more than it was originally, but I think that's unfair because obviously at the time, I'm sure it looked incredible originally. It's just with sort of all the time that's elapsed since that car was originally new, we can inject a bit of sort of modern modern flair into it, which I think makes it more appealing today and certainly made it more appealing to the, the customer. And that's the thing not to forget is obviously we're building all of these cars for specific people. Um, so not everybody will agree with what we've done. Um, you know, our, our sort of job, if you like, is to take their ideas and lead them in a direction where those ideas come together and look right. Um, but it is still mm. creating the vision that's set down by the customer. Um, and I think that's, well, I hope that's something that sets us apart from a lot of other sort of car builders where it's kind of they're coming up with the idea and then selling that, you know, this is how we should do a Porsche or this is how we should do an E-Type or whatever. Yeah. And then kind of selling that idea to the customer. It's, it's almost the other way around with us. We want the customer to sell the idea to us. And then we go, yeah, that would be really cool, actually. Let's let's do that and then build on the ideas they've laid down. So are there cars, you know, that you wouldn't do? Or... It depends. You know, it depends. 
cars we were saying, you know, I don't know, like a <laughs> yeah, Tesla yeah. Model 3. There are cars we wouldn't <laughs> do. Um, there's overall constant, overall ideas we wouldn't do is probably the better way to put it. Uh, we've got yeah. to... We've got to be enthused about it, and that's that's what it really comes down to. For us to do a good job, we've got to yeah. be excited by it, and uh, you know, share the passion. Um, so if I don't feel that kind of yeah, that would be amazing straight away. I think it, you just you're not on the right track. We can't do it unless we're excited about it, um, which is usually the first step when we get an inquiry yeah. through. It's you know, I can tell straight away uh, it's either a rubbish idea <laughs> or I think yeah, that's actually potential to be something really cool yeah um, and that's that's what i like about this the sort of process is what keeps us fired up is when you have other people suggesting the ideas it keeps everything fresh rather than us trying to go what next what we're going to build next yeah. if you get suggestions from other people it, it it sort of injects so much more creativity into it because you, you're getting suggested ideas you'd have never thought of yourself and then it kind of gets you fired up about something you'd never have thought of in the first place. And then you get to put your ideas into that mixing pot um, and make it make it happen, basically. But, yeah, there's certainly – certainly. I mean, I, I turn away probably 99 out of 100 inquiries, I would say. Um, now, not not always because we don't agree on the ideas. It, there's obviously other, other things involved, um, you know. Timescale expectations would be one. Cost expectations, of course, is often a, a stumbling block. Um, but yes, often they're just, mm, I don't think that's a good idea. I don't, I don't want to do it. So, you know, there's, it's, it, and, and the customer as well. That's you, another really critical thing. We're obviously embarking on a, a pretty long journey, and it, it, you know, they're all they all relationships. Um, yeah. You know, they're, they're all. It's an it's a roller coaster journey. If you've ever watched Grand Designs and you see the house projects they have going on and the ups and downs, and you see the customer's emotion kind of up and down throughout it as things go right and then things go wrong and things go right, and it's the same with car builds. There are ups and downs to it. Um, so it's a it's a fair old relationship, and I, I need to be sure from the start that it's the person we're building for is somebody that we're going to get on with throughout the duration of that. Yeah, yeah. Like like grand designs, do they often start and then uh, sort of an extra fifty percent price oh, yeah. by the time you get yeah, to the end? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure most of my customers would would say, oh yeah, you basically t- times the time scale by two and the cost by two, and you'll be about there, which is more or less what exactly what grand designs is, usually ends up as. <laughs> <laughs> Do you, it must be interesting if you get people coming in and they go i want to do this do you sometimes go that, that sounds like a great idea but what about this yeah and then do you get as much sway definitely all the time yeah i mean we're actually we get customers and this is amazing i know this is something i never thought would ever happen we, we've had customers come to us uh, with don't even know what car they want. They literally have come to us and said, I want you to build me a nice. car. What would you like to build? And, and it, obviously it has to be something they want, but, but it's kind of literally started from a blank canvas. I think I can think of two off the top of my head here that it, they, where the guys approached us and didn't actually know what car they wanted. They just knew they wanted us to build something yeah. cool for them, which is amazing. Um, but yeah, we, we are, yeah, they'll often be, Certainly in terms of the ideas, it would be very frequently, ah, oh, I want to build this. What about this engine and this, 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 this? And I'll be like, mm, yeah, but mm. step back a bit. And this is quite an important part of our involvement is um, the ability to look at the big picture and, and break it down into what you actually want in terms of how the car drives, what you're going to use it for, et cetera. Because I very often get people say, I want, I'm thinking about this project. I want this car with this engine and this suspension and these brakes. You know, and, and they've kind of mapped out all of the 
key parts of it, which I understand because obviously they're trying to get their head in, into this project. But it's very important to just step back and and first principle is what are you actually going to do with the car? How do you want it to feel? You know, how refined, how often are you going to drive it? How what roads are you going to drive it on? Because all of that massively affects the the choice you go down in terms of all of the mechanicals, you know, engines, gearboxes, suspension. It all needs to be tailored towards the experience you want to get out of it. And that is very and what's critical to that is how you're going to use it. You know, what roads are you going to drive on? Are you going to be driving from here to the south of France? cruising down the corniches of the Mediterranean or are you going to be commuting back and forth five miles down British country roads? You know, the requirements in terms of how a car feels for those things is wildly different. Um, and you can't, you can't re- realistically, if you try and tick all of those boxes, you end up with a massive amount of compromise, which is exactly where all car manufacturers are. A massive amount of compromise, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so this is where you can create something more special and more suited to what you want because you aren't trying to compromise it necessarily. I mean, obviously, you can introduce more compromise if you want to be able to use it in more situations. And, you know, there's always some degree of compromise. But when you're building a car that's specifically tailored to one person, a bit like a house, going back to the grand designs thing, you can you can have less compromise in terms of the experience of using that car. That's because that's quite an interesting one. I get often get people. Um, my mum asked me this week. She was like, I, "I'm looking for a new car. Um, I possibly want X. I want a car, and you know, what should I get?" And you're like, okay, there's uh, there's a lot here. There's a lot. There's a lot to unpack before we go. This is the end result. And and I know from my like road cars and stuff, it's like, okay, and I've done this journey with my backdated SC. The you're like, I like, I want an old 911, and then it's sort of changed a little bit over time. And then what I want has changed over time. And I don't really, ultimately at the moment, I'm not even sure what I want that car to do. Because you're like, well, I quite like it to be, I I love the RSR look. I also like the narrow look now. But at the time, I was like, I really, I really like wide looks. And so I like fat tires and like big twin exhaust, make lots of noise. And then I'm like, yeah, but I really like doing road trips, like long journeys. And then I also like it being on the limit at low speeds. Mm. And then, and you, and you do all these things, and you're like, but this is not one car. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly it. It isn't one car, and that's that's the unfortunate reality of it. You can't really have something that does all of those things um, without a disappointing end result. It's if you look, at you, it's funny you were saying about you know helping choose a new car, and it's the market now. It's so easy to just you can see why manufacturers are doing things the way they are because everybody just chooses off the numbers. You look at you look at you know the car's got this much luggage capacity. Yeah, I need to get lots in it. So then you just look at the emissions. You're like, okay, well it's going to be cheaper with less emissions. It's going to be cheaper. Yeah. So you just go down the list, and then people question why people like VW fudge the uh, emissions results. Well, it's hardly surprising they do that when all you do all you're buying a car on is the emissions results, and the only way you can make a car that that's got low emissions is by making it fairly boring to drive. So if you want something that's exciting to drive, it doesn't necessarily go hand in hand with that. Um, so it's, it's yeah, it, it is, uh, you know, I've, I've, a great example actually is that probably surprisingly for yourself, Nat and I both drive Nissan Leafs as our everyday car okay. um, because it does exactly what we need for the run. run. I mean, we've got some really cool stuff as well. But I do 10 miles to work and 10 miles back. And 
all I want to do after work is just chill out. I'm not interested in thrashing flat out down the roads. I'm usually stuck behind other cars anyway. And so re- realistically, in that situation, I want something that's cheap to run, decent sound system, decent heater, decent air con, and reasonably comfortable. And it <laughs> ticks those boxes perfectly. Now, I've got a, like a 1976 um, Celica Coupe just out the window here, which is why I'm looking that way, um, which is incredibly cool. I absolutely love it, but I wouldn't want to drive it every day because it doesn't do any of those things particularly well. The heater's all right, but it's a bit slow to heat up. It's fairly unrefined. Uh, it's fairly drafty. It leaks a bit. You know, it doesn't. It just wouldn't be as nice to live with every day. So, it, but but at the weekend, totally different. I wouldn't want to go out in the leaf at all at the weekend because doing a longer drive where I'm actually driving for enjoyment rather than driving just to get somewhere, it's a totally different set of criteria and. It, it, again it goes you, you can't really you can't to choose something that does both those things reasonably well it doesn't do either of them very well uh, is the best way of describing it so i could get a tesla which would be probably better to drive than the leaf but ultimately it's still not going to be the the ultimate engaging driving experience that i want on a weekend and it's not that's cheap to run i'd be cheaper running the leaf so <laughs> it's just an un, it seems to me a compromise whereas i've got an e30 bmw uh, with like a throttle-bodied four-cylinder in it. And that's the thing I'd choose at the weekend because it makes a great noise. I feel engaged driving it, you know, getting the gear changes right, lifting the throttle, you know, doing all the things that make driving a pleasure. Whereas I wouldn't want to do that just cruising to work and back. So, yeah, essentially, it's it's there. different cars do different jobs, and that's where we come in to do a, build a car for somebody that does the jobs they want that car to do. I literally have this conundrum pretty much every day of my life, which is like, uh, I want to drive something cool and interesting every day, but doing that is completely, it just defeats the point. You know, you're like, well, actually, I kind of need some space. It needs to be, the main thing needs to be comfy on a motorway and quiet and have adaptive cruise control. That's it. And I'm like, yeah, but could I drive a 911 every day, GT3 RS? You're like, you could, but you'll have a shit time. Yeah. And then you're like, yeah, but but then I'm driving a GT3 RS. And you're like, ah, oh, no. Like, it's, I, it's easy to get drawn. I struggle so much. <laughs> it's, it's easy to get drawn into thinking there's something that solves all these problems, and there just isn't. I mean, you have, you've just got to face the fact that there isn't. You know, it's they're, they're different cars for different jobs, and and that is the bottom line. Yeah, the 911 would be amazing on the weekend when you want to just go out for a thrash in the I don't know the Yorkshire Dales or something. But you know, going back to like the, the Nissan Leaf, that's what does the job well for me for commuting to work and back. That's perfect. But at the weekend, I, I just I, I can't stand it. I just don't, I want to just park it up and not use it till Monday. Yeah. But then on Monday, when the time has kicked in before I got to it and heated it up inside and de-iced it before I get into it. It's spot on. It's exactly what I want at that moment. <laughs> and then you end up with this situation. So, yeah, I have an E208 Peugeot, and I, I love the fact that it heats itself up and stuff like that. And the more I drive that car, a bit like going on holiday, if I go on holiday, I drive a rental car. Mm. That's the slowest car I'm going to drive all year by quite a margin. And then I come back home, and everything feels quick again, and you're like, oh, mm. this is so great. Like, just having the, whatever, the car that you drive to work, Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. 
PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Makes the ones at the weekend feel much more special. Mm. As soon as you try and drive something that's really special more often, it loses its specialness. Yeah, that's a um, very, very good description. Yeah, I've had a lot of chats with a friend of mine, uh, Tim Shmi Shmi One Fifty, yeah, yeah. um, about um, about this very problem. So he has loads of nice cars now, and he's he's got some that he considers more special than others, and. He's like, yeah, so I, what I do is I purposely restrict the amount I drive, for example, like his Senna. He's like, I drive it a lot less than I might otherwise because if I drive it once a month or whatever, you know, something like that, it feels special and it feels crazy every time I get in it. Yeah. If I drove it every day, I'd be like, yeah, whatever. This is just, you know, normal car. Um, and it's very easy to sort of end up in that in that way. So... Along with all of these these builds, part of it is is the powertrain, um, and often you're swapping in engines, aren't you? Most of the time, yeah, basically because most of the cars we're working on are sixties and seventies, um, and most engines from standard road cars then are the biggest downfall of the experience. And then, how, so how do you go about choosing an engine for the car? comes down to quite a few factors if i if i choose a specific one um project utah the mark 2 jaguar that we're just finishing um that one was well the xk6 engine that they originally had was a great engine actually at the time a fantastic engine um but they're very big they're pretty heavy perhaps not horrifically heavy for an engine of that capacity at the time but now in modern by modern terms way too big and heavy um they made reasonable power for the day very good power for the day in fact but certainly they're not as efficient as engines are now they're very expensive to rebuild because they're such an old engine you're going to find a lot of the castings are porous corroded etc and you end up getting new castings parts which are all available but they're also very expensive um so you you can rebuild one of those engines and you're going to end up with something that's very expensive uh reasonable on the power front but a bit heavy and a little bit old-fashioned in its design, so reliability perhaps a little questionable. Um, but they make a great noise, and that was the sort of cornerstone on that one. That six-cylinder Jag noise was the the little piece of information that we latched onto very early on that one. So we're like, well, let's make it a straight six then. So then it was moving on from let's make it a straight six to well, what are some of the best straight six engine designs of well of all time? Um, and there's a few immediately. So there's you've got your BMW M series engines, um, sort of like the E46 M3 engine. I forget the code off the top of my head. S54 perhaps. Um, and then you've got Nissan. So the RB26 was a great engine, uh, and Toyota uh, 2JZ 
also great engines. So we kind of straight away, they were the, th the three that were thrown out off the bat as probably the three best straight six engines ever designed. In our opinion, I'm sure there'll be other people who might throw a couple of others in there. Um, but they're certainly great engines and they would make the right noise. And then we thought, well, actually, the BMW M series engine, although arguably one of the better engines in that group, it's canted right over to one side in standard form. And we didn't want to dry sump it because it's a, it's just a, it's not a performance car. It's a daily cruise kind of car we're building. So we didn't want the clutter of a dry sump system in there, the, the sort of questionable reliability versus wet sump. So that kind of ruled that one out. So then we were like, well, okay, Nissan RB26 or Toyota 2JZ. Um, and actually it just came down to the fact that the 2JZ is a three litre, RB26 is a 2.6. Mm. It's got that extra grunt there as standard. And bearing in mind, we were going to do it naturally aspirated, uh, made sense to go bigger capacity. And that was the decision done, made. Um, so, and, and that, those, I mean, Toyota, generally Japanese engines from the nineties, the engineering standard is just out of this world. Um, we, we're all mm. surprised when we strip that 2JZ, it's the first one we worked on the level of, quality on the engineering is just next level and it's the same we're doing um, a 1UZ V8 for a Land Cruiser that we're building um, and it's the same yeah. like we stripped that engine down we're like this is just like another level to most of the manufacturers of this era um, in terms of the attention to detail on engineering so yeah so that was that was how we went about the choice on that car um, the V8 I just mentioned on the Land Cruiser I think you know the owner yourself. Um, so that was Definitely. always going to be just a car to cruise around in. It doesn't need to be super fast, but it wants to be really smooth, make a nice noise, nice and talky, just effortless feeling when you're driving it. So we were like, well, could do a straight six, could do a V8, would be nice to keep up with Toyota. They were the sort of factors at the beginning of that one. Um, and then we were like, well, the, the weight distribution is a little nicer with something that's only four cylinders long. Uh, and, the, and the engine bay isn't that long in those Land Cruisers. So we thought, well, the obvious choice then is a V8. And if it's going to be a Toyota V8, uh, the 1UZ from Lexus LS400 and a few other things, um, it's really well known as an incredibly well-engineered and bulletproof engine. So that, that one was a fairly easy one. And so we're just in the process of building that. But then we... Same with the 2JZ and the Jag. We kind of put our own slant on it to make it look right visually. So on the 2JZ, we've right. done our own billet rocker covers on it that look quite reminiscent of the XK6, and they've got little dome nuts holding them down, which look reminiscent again. We've done the plug leads kind of over-braided in this uh, sort of cotton braiding, which looks really vintage. And then we did our own inlet manifold to put Genby Heritage throttle bodies on it, which are essentially a cosmetic replica of a Weber DCOE carb but it's fuel injected. So it looks, you open the engine bay and it's kind of classic looking, looks like it's on triple yeah. covers, but actually it's a, an injected 90s Toyota engine. Um, and then similar on the Land Cruiser, we've, we've designed our own cam covers on it, which hide coil-on plug units in there with a cover over the top. So it, it keeps it really clean looking. There's no plug leads on display at all on that one. And we've done that again with uh, sort of design with dome nuts and our logo on, which is a little bit influenced by the Cosworth DFV cam covers. That was what we had at the back of our mind when we were designing those, just because they look sort of 70s. And then yeah. doing um, like a four-barrel intake manifold um, that takes a, a four-barrel carb re replacement throttle body. So it's like a, a throttle body that's designed to replace a four-barrel carb on an American car but it means it will get fuel injection and have a central throttle body that we can then put a big pancake filter on. So it'll look really 70s with a, just a big sort of central yeah. round filter on the top, uh, all the wiring hidden away. Um, but, you know, under the skin, it's still be running MoTeC management, fuel injection, 
Um, you know, you'll have electronic idle control on it, closed loop lambda on it, knock sensing on it, everything you'd expect on a, a modern fuel injected engine. But in a package, when you raise the engine bay, it's like well, engine bonnet. It looks like a really cool 70s V8. Yeah. And hopefully it looks like that's how Toyota intended it. Yeah, it's super cool when you, you see that. Do you get um, Do you get a lot of like pushback flack from the, you know, classic don't mess with it crowd? Yeah, uh, yeah, we do. And, uh, I, I quite enjoy it, to be honest. Uh, historically, I've viewed it as kind of almost in, in a weird way, enjoying annoying the purists, but with no real meaning to it. And actually, more recently, as the YouTube channel has grown, we obviously we get our name has grown, I suppose, and we get more and more verbal negativity on social media and uh, on YouTube, which, which I hasten to add is massively outweighed by the positive comments. But but I actually, these days, I've, I've taken this different mindset to it that I'm actually quite proud that people are that kind of, uh, that we've, we, we're we on people's minds that much that they feel the need to comment on something. I'm kind of, I kind of like yeah. that almost. It's, it, uh, even if it's a negative comment, it means that it's almost they're disappointed in what we've done. It's perhaps the best way to describe it. So they were that excited about what we were doing. They felt the need to be disappointed. There's an emotion been created there. And I <laughs> put that positive spin on it, thinking if we've actually made this person that emotional to go and write a comment, that's got to be a good thing. Yeah, you're trying to provoke something with these cars ultimately at some point. you know. And- obviously not the primary cause. We are just approaching everything from... Uh, we're just approaching everything from an engineering point of view, and that's that's always been the reason. We've never intentionally gone right. How are we going to annoy these people? That's not the goal at all. We've just approached everything with no kind of brand allegiance, just an engineering brain, and where we say, mm. "Well, this is the car. What what's a nicely engineered engine?" Um, it doesn't really cross our minds that it's oh, we've got rid of what Jaguar intended and put a Toyota engine in there. We've just looked at it and gone, "Okay, well, this engine is more nicely engineered than this engine," and it. Or perhaps this yeah. engine suits what we want more than this engine would be a better a better way of putting it. Um, and so it just comes about from approaching it from that point of view of we've got a blank canvas here. We can do this any way we want. So what's the best tool to do this job? Uh, and if you apply, apply that to all the different components, theoretically, it creates a fantastic car. Um, so for us, it's not that we've gone, oh, how can we annoy people with this? It's just that that's been what we've chosen from an engineering point of view. And it happens to not be made by the same group of people that made the car originally. Yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it ultimately, it's about what the owner wants. If the owner's like, yeah, I want you to put the original engine in or something similar, then you do it. Yeah. Yeah. We would, we'd ha- if we had, um, if we really were against it, we'd have to have a discussion about it. Um, you know, if, I get, it comes back to that thing of trying to create the thing that best fulfills the requirements for what, what the owner wants from that car. So if they've told us they want to use the car for this, this, and this, and this is how they want it to feel, and then they suggest an engine that we think won't create that feel at all, then we'd have to put our foot down and say, look, if this is what you want, that's not going to achieve it. Um, and there will be there will be instances, if I'm, fair, if I'm honest, where we would just say no. Um you know, I know they say the customer is always right, and obviously we want to create the car that the customer is what the customer wants. But if we feel strongly enough that a particular component choice isn't going to be a good idea, then yeah. we just have to put our foot down on that. You know, ultimately, it's also our name on it at the end of it. And if we believe that that choice 
is going to compromise the overall package at the end, then yeah, we'd have to say we'd have to say no. Yeah, with um, having a look around some of the interiors and stuff, you've done. I think I can't. No, it was the new Mark II Jag, the one you're doing at the moment. Um, I think you'd rather than use wood, you'd. Was it dipped or something? Yeah, so that's on Project Utah, the, the Mark II that we were talking about with the Toyota engine. Yes, um, the wood finish uh, on all of the interior parts of the cabin are hydrogen. So um, for those who don't know what that is, it's essentially having a transfer that you float onto the surface of a tank of water and then you dip the object you want to apply it to in. And because it's on the water, it'll conform it around a three-dimensional object. So it effectively allows you to print onto a three-dimensional object is the best way to explain it. Yeah. And you can create some amazing effects. So the wood in that is essentially all the parts have been painted with a base coat of a certain brown colour to give it the, the overall um, sort of coloration. Then there's a film which has got the wood grain on it, which is then hydro- hydrographically transferred onto that. Um, and then it's clear lacquered over the top and then flattered and polished to get the sort of super glossy finish. But the massive benefit of that process is you can apply it to anything. So it's for us on that, we've made the dash fascia in aluminium because it's easy to, it's just much more suited to what we're trying to do. It's a, we want a thin yeah. panel. Um, it's easy to work with aluminium. We can get the curves we want. It's much more stable. It's not going to crack. It doesn't expand and contract as much. There's not really any negative sides to that. Um, and then we can apply that finish to that. But then we can also apply it to things made of other materials. So actually, some of the, the trims over the sort of at the bottom of the roof lining over the door aperture, they are the original wood trims. And we've epoxy primed them to seal them in and then hydrogen them, which sounds slightly counterintuitive <laughs> to fake wood finish onto real wood. But it ties everything together. Um, and although you're, you, the immediate reaction we tend to get from people on that is that it's not going to look right, it's not going to look real. But and there are plenty of people out there achieving bad results with it. Um, we use wicked coatings for our hydro stuff, and then we're very particular about the prep to get everything perfect. We do lots of samples to get the color right, the pattern right, and I think it looks well. If you didn't tell somebody, in fact, I had Ian Callum here the other day, who's quite well known. <laughs> having a party jack um and he looked over that interior and said oh what's what what's the wood and i told him about the fact it was hydro and he looked closer and closer and closer and was saying wow that you just wouldn't know um and it's it's yeah. and it because it's so stable it's it just stays looking much nicer because the lacquer doesn't sink into any of the wood grain so it just keeps a really glass-like finish onto it so yeah we do that we've done that on quite a few cars and in fact we're actually the uh, Kaiser 2 Mercedes we did we originally left all the dashwood standard on it as a nice little nod to sort of where it, it's it's passed if you like and then the one thing the owner has now said is with hindsight he'd have done a new dash with the hydrographic finish because he had another right, car yeah. it. and uh, so we're actually redoing the wood in that with that uh, hydrographically done finish and it allows us to rechange the layout of the dash because obviously we're going to remake it in aluminium so so yeah i mean that's that's one that does seem to upset the purists again but from a practical point of view it does everything we want it to do you know it gives us it allows us to get that uniform wood finish onto all sorts of different materials and it's way more stable than wood so what in my yeah. opinion what's not to like I, I saw it, walked in, and I really looked around the interior, and I'm like, hmm, this is nice. And then you said, oh, this bit's like hydro-dripped. And I was just like, oh. my brain just went, what? 
yeah. what? <laughs> that, what? And then you look at it and you're like, yeah, but this just looks like really nice wood. <laughs> That's it. Just looks like nice wood. Yeah, I think people have put off because they've probably seen bad attempts at it. Or in, if you think about um, OEM manufacturers who have done fake wood grain finishes, it tends to not look that great. Um, yeah. But you can certainly get it to look incredible. I, I personally think it looks better than real wood. I'm sure there'll be lots of people who up in arms about me saying that. <laughs> You've got to go and see one of these ones done, though. Like You can't just go and look at another example and go, yeah, it looks rubbish. Before you comment, you'd have to look at this car in person and say, oh, no, that <laughs> yeah. I, can't, I can't possibly conceive of anybody looking at it and going, yeah, that would look rubbish. And, and all of the other benefits, which are vast over, over you know, mm. depth of time. In the background, this, 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 this is just slightly out of shot, but this car here in this painting behind me, or this yeah. photo, I say, uh, as the, the first one we did, and it's got this absolutely good. It's a Mercedes 108, and it's just got this gorgeous redesigned dash we did with just a clock in the middle, which you can just about see there, and a sweeping center console that comes right down the car, comes out of the parcel shelf, kind of cascades down. It's got a little cubby hole in the back with a custom-made um, bottle holder for the guy's favorite whiskey and crystal glasses in there, and it comes forward. Um, past the armrest in the front and then there's like a slide open panel we did on it um which mm. you close it, it's just wood grain all the way up and then you open it and it's got a cordless phone charger the audio controls etc in there so just super clean but that was the first one we did where we did that hydro dip wood onto aluminium and just thought wow this looks amazing yeah it, it, it's cool you so you've done you do so many you've done so many different cars do you do the same will you do the same one Again, if someone said, I want one like that, yes, what, what would happen in that scenario? And we've got a couple, um, like the XJC. I've got a couple of XJCs booked in, which were inspired mm. by the one we've already done. I'd start by saying, as long as we're excited about doing another one, yes, I would like it to be different to the other one. That's the thing. I, wouldn't, I would never probably want to do one that's exactly the same because I don't feel that another individual would make all the same choices had they not been shown yeah. the other one. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, I'd like to kind of change things and, and tailor it more to their um, use. Um, but yeah, I would certainly consider doing the same make and model of car, but I would like, rather than just jumping into straight away, yes, we'll do that car again, I'd like to sort of tailor it more to that customer's requirement. And also it's a bit, a, a little bit out of respect for the guys who had the other ones done because yeah. they wanted, a, everybody comes to us because they want a one-off and it would seem unfair to copy somebody else's one-off and do it to, yeah. to somebody else um i get a few people say like for the morris for example we've done those handmade steel wings on it and lots of people have said why don't you take molds off those now and sell them as like a, a morris minor bolt-on white body kit um and we wouldn't a, a because it's it's not that exciting to me selling body kits um yeah. but b I just don't think it would be respectful to the owner of that car because we've we've put all the time and work into sculpting that shape on that car, which he's paid for. Uh, it would seem very unfair to then offer lots of other people to be able to build a car with exactly the same shape. You know, it's just I just don't see that as on. I think that would be unfair. Yeah, I I, I think so. So I guess you want to sort of, even if you were doing the same model, you want to start the process afresh. Yeah, even if the that. end result is similar, you're like. Well, let's that's do this properly. Step back and reconsider it with fresh eyes and go, you know, yes, we can do an, an XJC or whatever it might be for you, but 
let's not just jump into copying that one. Let's step back and do the same process we did for that one. You know, what engine's going to be best? What transmission? What? Where are you going to use it? Go through all of that again and and see if we come out with a slightly different car. Which, you know, everybody's different. So nine times out of ten, you're going to come out with a different car. Does um doing all of these this wide variety of of builds and they're all a bit different is that is that really good for the team because everyone they're always working on something new yeah definitely i mean that's that's one of when i was saying you know keeping things exciting by doing different things that's that's absolutely true yeah i mean all the guys here uh, including ourselves are just most motivated by seeing these cool new ideas take shape and come together and i think it would be it would become more boring if we were repeating all the time now there's certainly there's certainly times when i wish we were just doing repeat builds because it's, there's a lot of headaches involved with doing one-off cars yeah. all the time um and you sort of envy the guys that are doing the same car all the time because you think well once you've done one if you jig everything and model everything and draw everything yeah. then the next cars are essentially following instructions and you can just train guys up to repeat that process um, and there, there is some avenues we're exploring in that respect. Um, I mean, you might have seen those Redux BMW M3s. Um, yeah. Now we're, we're working with Simon, who's Mr. Redux, if you like, and we're developing and building those cars, uh, which is a repeat build. And we will be enjoying that process of them becoming more efficient as we do more. Um, but there definitely needs to – I would never want to move to a position where that's all we're doing. We're just repeating yeah. the, time because i think at that point the sort of um re- how rewarding the job is just goes down because you're just following yeah. following the repetition and once you've once you've nailed that where do you go from there once you've perfected building that one car how do you kind of further yourself you know and i think it, it doing those one-offs and seeing them come together and pushing the challenges and pushing things to the next level is where all the guys here get their sort of uh, motivation from is is just because you feel like you're part of creating somebody's dream you know it's it's sort of it's, it's very difficult to describe but we're all very proud of what we do and i think it's that um that kind of bespoke one-off building something to somebody's specific dream yeah. that really really kind of boosts that feeling of satisfaction yeah and the the sort of artistry side of it and all of that kind of starts to go out the window if you've if you've 3d scanned everything and and I guess with older cars, they're probably not all exactly the same. So there's going to be a bit of like change here and there, but then you're basically just assembling. So you're just printing the parts, making them whatever and assembling. It's not quite the same. That's it. Exactly. And there is, you know, as I say, it's some of it would be nice sometimes just to have nice plates, straightforward, follow these instructions because it means Matt and I are less involved. We're not, you know, at the moment we're constantly asking, answering questions. People come to us, how do you want this doing? How do you want that doing? How do you want that doing? And w- when it's a one-off car, we haven't designed every tiny little nut and bolt and everything on the car. There's always going to be those questions. Um, and the, the key really is just getting staff that share your mindset. And over time, they, they learn how you think and how you would do it. So from asking all those questions, gradually they know what you're going to say. So they have to ask, they ask less questions. But certainly, the view, the joy of not having all those questions asked does seem appealing sometimes. And you yeah. think, well, I can build a solution to that because you've got written instructions for everything you need to do. Just go and work on that car and don't yeah. bother. That's how you feel. But I know in reality, <laughs> if we were only ever doing that, we'd get bored. We'd just be like, okay, yeah. we'll turn up like, oh, we're just bolting together the same things we were bolting together yesterday. So we're like working on the production line at any car factory, which... You know, it's got its appeal, but it needs, there needs to be the mix here. I think I think I see the overall 
um, business model going forward is I always say a bit like the Icon model. If you're aware of Icon 4x4 in the States, uh, Jonathan Ward's business. Had him on the podcast. Ah, excellent. So you do know. So (laughs) the model there is that he does a few off-the-peg repeat builds, but then lots of bespoke stuff alongside that. And I think that's that's the right balance. So you can dial down the quantity of bespoke stuff so that you keep your sanity – but you still get the excitement of being involved with those things whilst you've got other things making money a little bit more efficiently on the side without so much of mental engagement. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because presumably 100% bespoke is like quite a lot of headache. Cool outcome. Like 80% bespoke, the same amount of like great feelings at the end, but a lot less of the headaches exactly that yeah exactly that and it's at the moment i think going forward we'll be exploring that more and trying to find the balance at the moment we're basically 100 percent. the redux m3s are, are kind of building up to take some of that percentage away hmm. um but yeah i think we've, we've got a couple of ideas of repeat builds that we might explore doing ourselves um and yeah so watch the space on that that'll be over the over the forthcoming years but i can foresee probably a time when we're doing maybe like 40% repeat builds, 60% bespoke perhaps. Uh, but we'll just, uh, we don't know, you know, we'll just, we're, yeah. since we started in 2009, we've just been on this journey of uh, what if we do this and what if we do that? There's never really <laughs> yeah. been a specific game plan. So let's just see where we end up. Do you have a particular sort of favorite, oh, like kind of era that you've been, you know, how, how new would you go? Or is it, I guess it's, it's a project by project basis. Like, Yeah, t- totally. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, we've never done anything like what i'd call modern modern uh i guess the most modern stuff we've done might have been like early 90s 92 perhaps yeah and uh, there's certainly lots of things from that era i mean i'd love to do like a super tourer build uh, and that would be mm. very cool something like a um like a premier this sounds really weird but like a primera super tourer would be so cool to do something like that as an actual motorsport build with that naturally aspirated sr20 in there you know that something like that would be cool um or even yeah. like do a btcc cavalier with the reverse head swindon engine in it um like because we do do some motorsport builds and you know stuff you can yeah, probably yeah. tell from my enthusiasm at the moment <laughs> I'd love to do something like that. It just comes down to the exact project. There's probably cars, brand new things we'd do if, if it was exciting. You know, it just comes down to what excites us. And I think, largely speaking, it tends to be 60s, 70s stuff. Um, but there's lots of, like, yeah, there is lots of newer stuff. You know, the M3 is an awesome car. Yeah. Uh, I've yeah. been E30. I've got one. So obviously I like them. I like E36s as well. And I guess you're spilling over into the 90s with that. Um and it'll probably continue to change. You see it with every every yeah. car nut you is that the cars that you perhaps weren't mad keen on ten years ago, now you're suddenly seeing the appeal of them. Yeah. You know, totally. It's, yeah, it's like A36 is a great example. Obviously, ten years ago, it was just the cheap boy racer slash drift car that everybody was thrashing into the ground because you could buy one yeah. for seven hundred quid, and it was a reasonably powerful rear wheel drive. And now, all of a sudden, actually. They're a really cool, timeless design. There's something about them, and, and, and you've, I've got that motorsport image as well. You know, the BCCC cars or the DTM cars, but BCCC in my head. You know, you've got Winkle, Hardcore. Uh, oh, who was the other one? I can't remember the other guy's name at the time. Like up behind another car, flashing the headlights. You know, yeah. just just yeah. amazing motorsport imagery. Yeah, it's it's, it's that's a funny one. The AE86. Like I, I I just have the. Um... 
that like the cartoon image of someone delivering tofu. I don't know if you've seen that. No. Oh, okay. There's like a, a Japanese TV show from 20 years ago. I can't remember what it's called. And uh, yeah, there's a little guy that delivers tofu and just drifts everywhere. Um, but yeah, okay. So with the the Redux cars, that like how, how does that work? Did you, did you get approached and said, Simon was like, yeah, I've got this idea. I'd like to do this. This is my perfect car. I think I can sell a bunch. Is that how it works? So, yeah, Simon had already built one car. So okay. he had a client. I think it started that he had the idea for basically building one for himself. Mm. Um, and he had a kind of vision for a dream BMW E30 M3 build. And then he had a, a guy in the States commissioned him to build essentially his vision for this M3. Um which he did, and around the time he delivered it, I think it was actually that customer that told him about us. Um, and I think he'd kind of learned the lessons of getting things done at all sorts of different places, so you know, metalwork here, yeah. paintwork here, etc., and all the headaches that that probably brought along the way. Um, so he he came to see us with a view to furthering that original concept and keeping it all under one roof. And yeah, we loved the idea. So. Uh, that was full steam ahead, really, and we're on. We've obviously delivered one car. The next one's here now. I believe there are several more um, sold. They're all in a queue, essentially, to come yeah. here. Um, so it's yeah, it's an incredible car to drive. It's, I mean, it's one of those where it was a bit, a bit. Uh, we were very nervous about it because the time scale ended up very tight towards the end of the build. Yeah, and we basically took it. Uh, to Vista Heritage to do, you know, that tiny little track they've got out the back of Vista yep. Heritage. Um, we were like, oh, let's do a shakedown session there. So we had a few hours there to do a shakedown. And then two days later, it was going to Flandau for Top Gear to do a, a test drive around the track in it. Um, and this was, bear in mind, this is the first time we'd driven it anywhere. <laughs> uh, two days before a track session for a magazine. Nice. Uh, and we took it out and I was just like, wow, this thing just feels insanely good. Um, and literally it went from that shakedown session to we had one day to do a couple of little tinkering bits on it. And then it went straight to yeah. now. Um, and then I think we had then another two days and then it went to... Um, uh, forgot the name of the place, but another circuit for yeah. uh, um, Petrolish, no, not Petrolicious, uh, Carfection, um, Henry Catchpole, Carfection. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he, he absolutely loved it. It's just it's just so pinpoint precise. And they're a great car to start with. That's that's the thing that really appealed about that project is that you don't need to totally reinvent the wheel with it mm. because they're, they're fundamentally a good car. So we've done a lot of work on stiffening a shell Um and just improving everything incrementally a little bit. So we haven't totally gone to town on it, but every little bit we've approached it with like, how can we tighten this up a bit? How can we firm this up a bit, but yeah. without it being you know, unpleasant? And it just results in this car that's so incredibly pinpoint and precise and chuckable, if you like, but still actually quite refined. That's cool. That's cool. I think that's one thing like, that those sorts of projects and, and, and a lot of these builds is you see the car from, it might be a 30-year-old car or whatever, um, which when you think about the 90s that, that sounds a bit mad that that's 30 years but how much can you sort of you know take a car like that and you go like I want to drive that car but there's a lot of things about modern car builds that I like so like I want yeah. the fit and finish to be better I want the road noise all of these things like to elevate 10% 20% but I still want that base 
experience underneath. Um, I think that's super popular at the moment. That is, that is you basically hit the nail on the head of, of the whole point of most of what we do there is exactly that, is taking the elements of what made that car cool and what you liked about that car and then bringing up to scratch the things that you perhaps didn't think at the time consciously were not so good. But when you actually analyze it, there's lots of things that aren't so good. If you get in a standard E30 M3, it's a great example. It, it's a, such a cool car, and you know, I'm sure loads of people lust after them. But after you actually get in and want to drive it, and it's a bit, it's a bit lacking in power. It doesn't really, you know, you expect it to suddenly come on cam and be amazing, and actually that never really happens. The engine's a little bit disappointing, and the suspension's a little bit too flexible, and the steering's really slow on them, and yeah. the shell's a little bit more flexible than you imagined, and nothing's quite how you imagined it to be. So it's very cool, but you do rose tint it in your mind a little bit and think yeah. you just swap around going, yeah, I've got an E30 M3, and then knowing that actually it's a little bit disappointing. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's actually still an old car. <laughs> yeah, it's still an old car. Yeah, that, that is the bottom line. It's still an old car. Um, so, you know, with a being able to go through it all and just analyze what it is that's creating that old car feeling and bring all that stuff up to scratch so it doesn't have that is is what it's all about yeah i i love that like i i like the look of old cars and i like certain driving experiences but i quite like things just like done really nicely and really well and to work and the thing is most of the cars were built to you know to to a price and that so you can't really blame bmw they weren't giving given an unlimited budget and it goes back to the compromise thing they were they were designing a car to appeal to as many people as possible um and a lot of people probably would like it to be quite soft and supple because they perhaps are doing the the bumpy ride or massive motorway mileage and that's it goes back to what i said earlier on about compromise if you're building that car for some somebody specific, then you can be much more um, tailored in terms of the experience. Yeah, totally. Right. I normally wrap these up with five questions. Do you have a most memorable driving trip or journey? Yes, um, probably a couple. There's one more recent because it's just in my mind. Um, we did a, I did a trip around the north of Scotland um in actually in a g-wagon that belongs to uh nice. somebody you know yeah um, which uh was awesome it was just me and a mate and we were just like right let's just go for it we went up we've got a bnb plan for the first and last day and we took tents and tarps and camping stuff uh and we just zoomed around like the nc500 and found this sort of lock off right off the beaten track we found a bit of ground at the side of it and just set tents out and pulled out a tarp and had a campfire and just in the middle and that literally in the middle of nowhere um and the, that road particularly down the west side of scotland that part of the nc500 is just amazing to drive as well so that that's a memorable recent one um and going further back um there's a couple actually one one that really sticks out is i did a banger rally quite a few years ago and we, I bought a Vauxhall Carlton Estate and done it up to be a replica of the dog van from Dumb and Dumber. So we literally covered it in fur, had a tail, had a face on it. You know, it even had the, even had the leg that you had to cock up to fill it with fuel underneath with a little stand to put it on, just like the van. Uh, and we did a journey all that we went over to Belgium and then down through like the Black Forest um, in Switzerland over the Gothard Pass. 
to Nice and Monaco. And I've got a photo of us parked up outside the casino in Monaco in a replica of the Dumb and Dumber dog van. Nice. Uh, so that, and then we drove all the way back as well. A lot of people dumped the cars in Nice, but we drove back and went via Epinay and stopped off at like uh, some of the champagne sellers on the way. Uh, again, it didn't look overly in keeping there, <laughs> but uh, that was a really memorable one. And, and I've done a few other drives around that that sort of um, Switzerland, around Swiss yeah. lakes, Locarno, and all that yeah. general area, and up over. We did a drive up over. We did one that was um, Milan. Uh, up to Locarno and then all the way over the top to um, oh, what's this? Chamonix. Um, that drive from Locarno to Chamonix is spectacularly good. Mm. Uh, and then from Chamonix down to Nice, which is actually, if you've never approached Nice from the north, it's an amazing drive down that way as well. You sort of end up down this kind of valley alongside lakes with real steep cliffs at the side. Yeah. That was pretty spectacular. So, yeah, a few down in that area. So they're the ones that stick in my mind. Yeah, that sounds sounds like a lot of fun. If you could only drive one car for the rest of your life and you have a £500 something on the side, you might get your... I don't know how much your leaf is, but Mm -hmm. it's getting towards that. Um, So one car and then £500 on the side. That is a really tough one. I'm sure everybody says that. That's a really tough one, especially because you can probably tell from all the conversations so far, I'm so focused on the fact that cars have to do different jobs so i tend to err towards having lots of cars um i mean my i've always said for a long time my dream car is a bmw e9 um which i would still stick with to be fair i think i would be modified i'd probably want to do a spectacular rebuild on it with maybe a m3 engine in it etc but it's one of my favorite looking cars of all time um i had one as my wedding car as well at a csl um i borrowed from somebody i know who's got three e9 csls which is pretty insane <laughs> I, said, I said can i borrow your e9 and said, yeah which one i've got silver red or white <laughs> so um yeah i think that would that would probably be it for me super cool i think that would be really cool right what do you th- what do you think is the most undervalued car at the moment the most undervalued car hmm I tell you what, I've got a totally obscure one here for you. You're never going to see this coming. One of my own cars, which is the one I use for long journeys, is a 1996 Honda Legend. Okay. <laughs> and they are insanely underrated. It's, and I'm, nobody will understand this, nobody will get this, but I've driven virtually every luxury car there is. And it is the best 90s luxury car there is. Yeah, it looks terrible. looks absolutely awful. But I've had 740s, uh, Jag XJs, uh, Lexus LS400. I've had basically all of them. And yeah. that is one of the – it's front-wheel drive as well, so you would have you would think it would be a terrible <laughs> choice. Three and a half litres of V6. But it's just amazing. It's just insanely comfortable. All the controls fall to hand perfectly. The visibility is absolutely spot on. It's got all of the gadgets that you want, but none of the stupid ones on modern cars that you don't actually ever need. Yeah. No menu systems to confuse yep. you when you're using it. So everything is just labeled and falls perfectly to hand. Uh, it's got a decent boot for a saloon car, big back seat, um, you know, sunroof. It's, it's just, it's, it doesn't sound exciting, but I would say that's probably one of the most under. I paid. 900 quid i think on oh, no, 1200 1200 yeah. for it a few years ago i bought it just to go to Le Mans because I, I wanted a nice i didn't have a comfortable car yeah. so I thought, i'll get a nice comfortable car to drive to Le Mans. uh ended up using it 
until I got the Leaf, it was every, my everyday car ever since. And I still use it because the Leaf range is pretty pitiful. For any any time I'm doing any long journeys, I jump in that. Every time I've done a meeting in London with, yeah. you know, like <laughs> been to Gordon Murray Design or <laughs> been, been to anywhere. <laughs> nice. Oh, that sounds like a great one. What is the most interesting car to you at the moment? What are you looking up, Googling, researching? There's some bizarre ones from from history that are quite interesting just because they were the first to do such and such a thing. I mean, this is totally not something I would normally go to, but it's on my mind just because Jay Leno, I was watching a Jay Leno video the other day on what was supposedly the first turbocharged, I don't know if it was the first turbocharged American, and I can't remember, it was an Oldsmobile of some sort, Oldsmobile something fire, I think it was. And uh, <laughs> it's a mad thing because it had like this forced induction carburetted V8 in it. And a bottle, they were running quite high compression on it. So it had like a bottle of um, methanol water mix that basically had a, some prehistoric diaphragm mechanism that did water and meth injection to stop it detonating. And you had to get a refill bottle from the dealer of this water meth combo yeah. to, to top it up to stop it yeah. detonating. So it's, it's just a completely, yeah, jet fire. That's it. An old <laughs> jet fire. Right, that's, that's fair enough. Right. Final question. Five car garage, unlimited value. Well, the E9 is going to be in there for a start. Um, I would have a 63 Corvette Stingray, the split window one, um, because I think they look incredibly cool. It's one of my, it's probably my second favourite looking car after the E9. Um, again, it'd have to be modified. It would, <laughs> it'd have a decent chassis on it and decent engine, all the rest of it. Uh, so yeah, 63 split window Corvette. Yeah, exactly that mega looking thing, particularly from the back. Um, the hard top one with that, that sort of, that sort of wrap around window with the divider in the mm-hmm. middle. Um, I would have an E28 M5 because I think they are just the coolest saloon. I, I love the look of them. They don't, I mean, they're still, they looked cool to be fair 20 years ago and they still look cool now. Yeah, I think they look that sharp. And I, I love the fact that these normal M5 didn't have any of the body kit on. It was an option, but the M535, which was actually didn't have the same engine, um, I came with a body kit, but the standard one had just the normal chrome bumpers, fairly fairly discreet looking, but it had a 290 or 286 horsepower straight six, individual throttle body straight six, which even by today's numbers is a serious amount of power in something that wasn't even that heavy for a car of that size. Um, I've never even driven one. I've had several E28s. Uh, that would definitely be in there because I think it'd just be the coolest family car. You know, I'd have it totally standard as well on that, just, just totally as it came from the factory manual gearbox it's just what a car should be yeah a saloon car 300 horsepower manual gearbox rear-wheel drive no electronics to interrupt you perfect uh so that's three uh what else i've always fancied an integrale but i think i would be disappointed so mm, don't know whether i'd put that in there or not have you ever driven one i've driven our mutual friends one but yeah, it was good it was fun it just i like i think it needs a bit of it needs a bit of something doing to it. It needs retro powering. I'll tell you what, uh, what I'd go with, I would probably have a Redux M3, actually, um, over that. Because it's. It t- I was thinking about why I like that, and I like it because of the boxy 80s-ness. Yeah. And actually, the E30 M3 has that. As a standard car, I'd probably have the Integrale over the M3. But actually, 
as a Redux version, I'd have the, the M3. So that's four. And then I think the last one, they're, they're, actually, they're all relatively down-to-earth cars in a, in a, in a relatively, if with, with price, no consideration, yeah. that's probably a sensitive yeah. collection. But the fifth one, I think, would actually be something that you used to own, um, which is would be my only kind of exploration into supercars. And it would be the one car I probably wouldn't drive it very much, but a Ferrari F40 would probably be the fifth, um, just because it's that bedroom poster car that yeah. you always thought was amazing yeah. and i still think they're amazing today and i've got memories of seeing various ones at various stages through my life where i've all and every time i've seen them, i've been like i can wish i could afford one of those it'd just be amazing um so i think one of those just because as i think i discussed with you at the time it's just that i'd just love to take that box and i, I definitely would yeah it'd just be something if I walked into the garage and one of those was in there, it'd just be like, I'll just sit there in a chair and look at it for a bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very, very cool. I think as we were discussing um, different cars for different purposes, I think an F40 is a, a perfect like 30-minute car, like 45, 30, 45 minutes on a, on a great road, not a motorway. Go for it. Enjoy the experience. Put it in the garage. Feel happy you come back alive. Thank you very much. Yeah. Get back in yeah, belief. Exactly that. <laughs> that, would be that. That would be that purpose. So I suppose you know that would be the one to just. I'd love having it there, and yeah, just take it out for a, a spanking on a country lane when the sun was out. Um, the E twenty eight M five would be the family car. Uh, the Stingray, just something that I just love the look of them. I, that would be incredible. And actually, the E nine almost ticks the same box. I feel like I should have varied more here, so I've got different cars for different reasons. But um, three BMWs. Yeah. That, that, yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's not a great surprise to me. Like, so no. I'm, 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 I am a bit of a BMW fan. We don't, we haven't done many actually professionally. Um, I've got an E36 and an, and an E30, um, and I would love an E9, an E9, and yeah, E28 M5. So yeah, it's, it, it, my BMW uh, fan in me is is obviously coming. To- Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. No, I think that's that's a great, great selection. Um, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. No, no problem at all. Pleasure.